Welcome to the Chris Rawl Show. My name is Chris Rawl, and I'm still basking in the glow of the Colorado Avalanche winning the 2022 Stanley Cup. I wrote about that journey as a fan in this week's newsletter. If you have not signed up for that newsletter, you should. Go to chrisrawl.com, click on the subscribe button, and every Wednesday morning, you'll be getting a free newsletter. And it will rant and rave about Kel McCarr and Nathan McKinnon and other things moving forward. But for the last little while, it's been Colorado Avalanche focused because I am a very big fan and it's been a really cool journey to be a part of watching this team over the last five years turn into the Stanley Cup champion. So go and sign up for that. And today is going to be essentially the second part of Tuesday's show. Tuesday was all about emotion. It was all about the fandom aspect of watching your team win. Today is going to be more analysis based. Uh, and we're going to dive into just the nitty gritty details of what it takes to be a champion. Now, close your eyes. I am always fascinated by the way that team championships are covered on an individual scale by the current state of sports media. Uh, you all know I push back against the hot takes and just the way that general discourse is surrounding sports in general. And it's no different when championships are won or lost. Uh, the teams that win, we go overboard in a lot of ways to say, well, this is why they're so much better and this is why this player is so much better than this player. And the teams that lose, we break out the hot takes and say, well, can they ever win? There's no way that this style of play can win or this type of leadership can succeed, all of these types of things. Now, we are in luck because the team that just won the Stanley Cup is my team, the Colorado Avalanche. I watched probably 75 out of 82 regular season games. I watched every single postseason game very closely, most of them multiple times. I can speak very knowledgeably and in great depth about the transformation that this team has gone over eh, my entire life, but really even within the course of the last five years, from 2017 when they were the worst team in hockey, the worst non-expansion team of this era, and now into present day, five years later, where they are the Stanley Cup champion. I can speak very knowledgeably about that, and I'm going to do so today because as part of the pushback against hot takery and all that kind of stuff, I think it's important to examine every little piece that has to go into that journey. And it's not as simple as just saying, well, Nathan McKinnon is so good, and that's why the Avalanche won the championship. And it's not as simple as saying, well, Darren Helm, a fourth liner, scored the biggest goal of the Stanley Cup playoffs for Colorado. And now that makes him much better in our eyes. It's just, it's piece after piece after piece after piece. So you look at a champion, this particular champion, the 22 Colorado Avalanche. And you go, well, okay, you know, how did, how did you get there? And I go, well, there's a lot of things that went into that. You have to be good and you have to be lucky. I always start there. That good aspect, there's a lot of things that go into that. You got to have stars at the top. It's kind of a necessary must. You got to have organizational structure. You got to have vision that comes both from the organization itself, ownership, general manager, down to coaching, down to players themselves. You have to have depth to accentuate what the stars are doing at the top. And then that luck component that's there for every single champion ever, even ones that seem dominant, like this Colorado Avalanche team, which was definitely dominant. I mean, they were 16 and four in the playoffs. They dump trucked everybody in the regular season until they clinched the West and then they stopped trying the last three weeks of the season. If they hadn't done that, they would have been the president's trophy winners the best team in hockey in the regular season for the last two years. But even a team like that, you need a component of luck in order to bring a championship your way. You need the breaks of the game, those things. So we'll start with stars because stars are the most important piece to the puzzle. 
That's why they garner the vast majority of publicity. That's why they are the ones who are always involved with the hot takery. You're not going to see Stephen A. Smith or Skip Bayless talking about general manager Joseph. Actually, you're not going to see them talking about hockey in general, but you're not going to see them talking about this missed move that a general manager didn't make or the way that this coach's decision impacted a team. You're going to see James Harden lose and everybody talk about it. Or you're going to see Steph Curry win and everybody talk about it because you need star power in order to stay afloat in any league. Uh, and hockey's no different. You know, you look back over the Stanley Cup teams of my lifetime and the only two that I could come up with that really didn't have super duper stars at the top were the 2019 Blues, which wrote a lot of great depth and incredible goaltending performance from Jordan Bennington to a Stanley Cup in 2019. But, you know, their best forwards, Ryan O'Reilly, their best defensemen, Alex Petrangelo, great players, all these players, but nobody who you'd consider a, a true superstar. And then the 2006 Hurricanes. Those are the only two teams that have bucked the trend of you need a true superstar on your roster. That's the starting point in order to try and win a Stanley Cup. And Colorado had the benefit of two true superstars, Kel McCarr and Nathan McKinnon. I've talked about them a ton dating back to last August because I'm fascinated by both of these players on a lot of different levels. And these playoffs were the coming out party for Kale McCarr. And these playoffs were the coronation for Nathan McKinnon for nine seasons of really incredible hockey that have been improved each and every season. Flush out your game, flush out your game. What can I learn from my losses? How can I improve? All that kind of stuff. There's not a lot that I can say about both of these players that I have not already said. I mean, Kale McCarr is 23 years old. He's maybe the most valuable player in the entire NHL, when you factor in age and ceiling and contract from a talent perspective, I think the only player that you can say is on his level is Connor McDavid, which is an incredible thing to say. And I would not have said that even three months ago. I would have said, this guy's the best defenseman in hockey, but you know, he's still, he's, he's got to grow, you know, and then I'm watching him every single night in the playoffs, including four games against Connor McDavid playing 30 minutes, doing everything on defense, doing everything on offense, breakouts, shots, checks, just doing literally everything. And by the end of that run, when he's hoisting the Conn Smythe Trophy as playoff MVP, two nights earlier, he'd been awarded the Norris Trophy for regular season, best defenseman. And I'm going, I don't, I mean, there's, there's a reasonable case to be made. This is the best hockey player in the world. That is insane. It's also insane that I think the consensus opinion coming out of the series was this is the best player on Colorado because Nathan McKinnon has been that for years. And it's not a knock on McKinnon to say that Makar is the best player because Nathan McKinnon is still one of the very best players in the world, one of the five best players in the world. And to have both of those players on the same team, that is an incredible starting point for building out a really competitive hockey team. There's a reason that Gabe Landeskog, the captain of the Colorado Avalanche, in a postgame interview after they'd won the Stanley Cup, can't remember who the announcer was, but they're going, you know, what, what would you say to other teams? What can they learn from you guys as they kind of look to go on the same journey? And he laughs and goes, go and get yourself a Kale McCarr which is impossible, we know. And it's also a testament to just the dude's ascent as a star that Gabe Landeskog sitting there in a post-game interview and crediting a lot of that run to just this transcendent 23-year-old defenseman that came out and, and moved heaven and earth on behalf of his team. So you start with the stars. Kennan's been there for nine seasons. This is McCarr's third. Now, the journey of the avalanche has been a long time in the making. I would kind of go back over a decade to the second component of what it takes to become a champion. Because that's where organizational structure and vision that stems from the top down kind of starts. And it takes a long time to instill. That's the time, this is the summer of 2011, when Joe Sackett takes over as general manager. And it's still a lot of years. I mean, again, Colorado 
was last place in the Western Conference in uh, 2013. They were last place in the league in 2017 by a mile. They were 21 points worse than the next closest team in the NHL in 2017. So it wasn't quick. It wasn't fast. When Sack took over, I think it was, all right, this is going to be a slow simmer. But Joe Sackick has also been a part of two Stanley Cup winning teams and a lot of competitive avalanche teams in the past as captain. And I think he understood, looking at this roster, this is not a quick fix. So, okay, we're going to get bad. Not we're going to get bad. We are bad, which allows us to draft some players. Okay, we can pick Landis Cog number two overall. Okay, we can pick McKinnon number one overall. Okay, we can pick Miko with, I think, the 11th pick. Okay, uh, we can get Kel McCarr. And slowly but surely, you get to a point where now you can be competitive moving into 2018 and 2019. And that's when your structure and your vision really becomes a key component of this. There's a quote from Nathan McKinnon that I want to read about just the losing that occurred. And especially as the avalanche were getting better, but we're still losing within that 2018, 2019, 2020, 2021 window. This comes from McKinnon. Every time you lose, you have to learn a little bit and figure a few things out. Vegas kind of took it to us, and we got away from how we play to our strengths. We got a little timid out there. We were a little hesitant, I think. When you play like that, you're not going to win against a team that is rolling, end quote. So he's obviously referencing the loss in last year's playoffs to Vegas in six games. That's kind of a seminal moment within this journey. But there were little moments like that throughout, again, going back to 2011, where Sakic as the GM had to learn, what is this team? What do we need to change? What do we need to keep as I'm looking to trade Ryan O'Reilly and Matt Duchesne? And, okay, does Eric Johnson want to be here? Okay, he does. Landis Cog, McKinnon, Rantanen. There's a lot of opportunities to ship out young pieces and get other pieces in. And you can say confidently in present day, okay, uh, Sakic made the right moves as far as who stays, who goes, and what ways do we need to get better? So Landis Cog, as far as the vision is concerned, Starts with Sackick. Sackick wanted analytics involved. He wanted speed. He wanted skill. And then slowly but surely flushed that out over the course of time so Colorado could be a more well-rounded hockey team, which they definitely showed in 2022. But the vision component, uh, that ties into leadership in mind and it ties into what do we want to be? That's what we want to be? Okay. How do we hold people accountable for that? So Landis Cog's named captain in 2012. He's 19 years old at the time. Again, this is Colorado when they're not good. And I think they said, all right, this dude is a leader of men, even though he's 19 at the time, youngest captain in the history of the NHL. Since then, the only one who's been younger is Connor McDavid. And he's a true calming presence. If you know anything about him, he is a leader of men, even at that age, much less in present day, uh, 10 years later. And he's also a dude who wanted to see things through in Colorado. He's just, no, I want to build something out here. I like the vision. I I like what we have. And I think we can build a winning franchise, even through these winning years. Now, Landis Cog has been that since he's been captain, since 2012. I think the more interesting component of the actual organizational vision for Colorado is Nathan McKinnon, who is the beating heart of the avalanche. And that has, that has not always been celebrated because as Colorado was losing, there was a lot of criticism that McKinnon took because he was too fiery, because he was too competitive, because oh, look, this guy's chewing out his teammates or he's, he's taking this loss too hard and, and he's part of the problem here. There was a lot of negativity around McKinnon. This is going into 2017, 2018, 2019. And people are going, well, look at these moments. This is why he's not captain because he, he's not a true leader. He's just, he's too fiery, you know? There's an incident in the start of 2019 
this is the like January of that year. They're playing Calgary. And he gets in a huge heated, it wasn't an argument because Bednar wasn't saying anything, the coach of Colorado, but McKinnon at the end of this game, Colorado's down a goal. They're, they end up losing 5-3 to Calgary and McKinnon's bitching him out on the bench, which was way intense. And Bednar's just, Bednar, the chillest human being on earth, just kind of sitting there going, all right, yeah. And it was a really big moment at the time in the hockey world. Oh, look at Nathan Kinney. He's too crazy. You, you know, you can't, this is just, he's, he's flying off the handle. And, and this is part of, you know, Colorado needs to solve this issue. Now, Bednar said something very interesting at the time. Because I've been a ride-or-die McKinnon guy since day one. Because give me any day of the week, the dude who has too much passion, the guy who wants to win too bad. Especially in a sport that is filled with hyper-competitive people, hockey, that just they're all trying to, you know, kill themselves and other people to win the Stanley Cup. And somehow Nathan McKinnon standing out in that environment, just give me that all the time. You can always find a way to channel that. I truly do believe that, especially in the sport of hockey. And so Bednar, again, the calmest, most diametrically opposite person from McKinnon, as far as that facet of a personality is concerned. Bednar is just, you never see him shout. You never see him scream. You never see him do anything. He's just, he's a lot like Lannis Cog. He's just a leader of men, you know? He's calm. He holds people accountable when they need to. He speaks the truth. He's just all the things that I think should be in a coach. He's not there to scream in your face. He's there to say, all right, this is what we need to improve. If you did well, I like that. Here's how we can continue to improve upon that. So after this uh, one-sided argument that happened in-game and was caught on cameras and everybody freaked out about, this is what Bednar said about this incident. I think that if you look at it from a player-coach perspective in this business, confrontation and emotion, to me, is not always a bad thing. It can actually be a good thing as long as you're channeling it in the right way. And I have no problem with players showing emotion. I've got thick skin. I'm not a sensitive guy and neither is Nate. And we have exchanges like that every once in a while. Whether it's with him or other players, I'm fine with it, end quote. I love that at the time because it didn't come across as false. Sometimes you hear uh, or you'll see an altercation and they go, no, it's fine. Uh, no, nothing's going on here. Uh, think about like the Draymond, Kevin Durant altercation that essentially ended up being the split that occurred there with Golden State. The things they said publicly, you could tell, did not have bearing on what was the actual dynamic of their team emotionally from a chemistry and from a vision standpoint. Uh, when Bednar said that, it, it matched up with everything I was watching. McKinnon, after the game, he was like, look, that was wrong of me. I shouldn't have not have done that publicly, but we were over it in literally 20 minutes after it occurred. It was done. It was gone. I said, I shouldn't do it that way. Uh, my grievances, they'll be done in private. And so hearing that stuff, I loved it because Colorado's trying to pave a path where they can win. They're trying to drag themselves out of the basement. And McKinnon has, you know, in 2018, he becomes a true superstar. So it's a year later. And now the superstar who hasn't won, the critiques are starting to fold in. And I'm going, no, this, I don't, I actually love this type of emotion. And I love the way Bednar handled it. I think it was perfect. And I love both of these players being a part of this vision for the franchise, which at its core is just, we want to win and we will die trying to win. And McKinnon, again, the beating heart of that particular concept. You know, you don't necessarily need to be a captain to hold people accountable for a franchise's vision. You're one cog in that machine, and there's a lot of people who can contribute. And I would point to McKinnon as being the most important person for just this single-minded focus that Colorado has this year of, we are not going to be phased by anything. We are not going to celebrate 
until we have won the Stanley Cup because that is the only thing that matters to us. So back in August of 2021, I recorded a show about Nathan McKinnon and his leadership style. I would encourage people to go back and listen to that because it holds up increasingly well in present day. It's called Nathan McKinnon and Establishing a Winning Culture. And at the time I was talking about uh, just how do you go about establishing a winning culture in a place that has not won? And there was an interview that had occurred at the time from Nikita Zadorov, one of McKinnon's former teammates who was traded to Calgary. And he was just talking about McKinnon. Very respectfully, it was not a negative thing, but he's just like, oh, McKinnon's a psychopath, you know? He's just, everything he does has to do with how can I get better at hockey and how can everybody else around me get better at hockey? And he's like, he holds everybody accountable. And it is not easy sometimes. And it will freak you out. And if you're not built for that type of a firestorm, you're going to wilt. But hearing this interview, I I loved it. Because again, I'm going, Colorado needs this. You know, they lost to Vegas the year prior. I thought Colorado was the best team in hockey throughout the regular season. McKinnon said the exact same thing in his postgame press conference. He goes, for whatever reason, we just, we didn't win. I don't think it was a vision thing. I don't think it was a leadership component. I think Colorado had not yet learned how to win. And they had not yet really, truly accentuated their depth, and their ability to be more versatile, which Sakic pieced together over the offseason and really at the trade deadline with the additions of Arturi Lekkonen and Josh Manson and Andrew Cogliano and that kind of stuff. So McKinnon and this vision, this, this aspect of leadership. You know, now there's more stuff coming out because the Avs won a Stanley Cup. And so more people are going on the record and just saying, yeah, okay, let's, let's talk about this. So I want to read a couple quotes from Ian Cole who also is a former teammate of Nathan McKinnon. He left Colorado two seasons ago. So he was there all the way up through last season. Uh, and much like Zadorov, uh, you can tell when he talks about McKinnon, he has like a ton, a ton, a ton of respect because Cole's just one of those old school hockey grinders, mean defensemen, just a guy who wants to win, right? And so threaded into everything he says about McKinnon is that respect of, look, I care, all I care about is winning and it's really intense and uplifting and inspirational to watch a dude who is as talented as anybody that you will play with or against be the driving force of that mindset. So this is what Ian Cole says. He's talking about Nathan McKinnon and he's talking about kind of the, the mentorship he had under Sidney Crosby, who they both grew up in the same place, Cole Harbor, Nova Scotia. And Crosby has been a mentor to McKinnon since day one. McKinnon always talks about just learning underneath Crosby, just this mentality of hockey, hockey, hockey. How do I translate this into winning? So this is Cole talking about McKinnon and Crosby. They're both extremely hockey centric. That's how Sid has always been wired. But to be honest, for Nate, it was a conscious decision he made after that really bad losing season they had in 2017. He felt he needed to live and breathe and do everything he could to be successful because that sucked. I think he made a conscious decision. That was miserable. That was the worst season I've ever been a part of. I am never going to let that happen again. And I'm going to hold myself accountable and hold everyone else accountable to make sure it never happens again. End quote. So you hear a quote like that and you just go, how could you not want that on your team? I always, always, always. And the person, I think this is the fan in me that just, I always want to watch people who care. And as a person who roots for a specific team or whoever a team is on a given night, if I'm betting them, that's the thing that always stands out. 
when somebody just cares even more than everybody else. And you're like, how's that possible in a sport like hockey where everybody is always caring? It's the greatest draw to a sport that I believe is there with anything on earth for just entertainment value. And you're watching a guy stand out in that environment. It is insane. But it's also something that I point at and say, this is what you want. This is what you want on your roster. And again, it's not always easy. Back in that episode I recorded in August of 2021, a lot of it was the comparison to the Michael Jordan leadership style. The very abrasive just, hey, I hold myself accountable in every single way, every second of the day. And so I will do the exact same to my teammates. And a lot of these people are not going to like it. And I do not care. And there was another quote that came from Cole that I kind of laughed at, but also was like, yeah, this is Nathan McKinnon because his expectation is I'm doing everything. I'm killing myself in order to win. And if you are on my team, you sure as hell better be doing the exact same thing. So this again comes from Ian Cole. There were guys on our team where he did not pull any punches. He's like, you are fat. Stop eating shit. In his defense, he's not wrong. He's just so blunt and honest and doesn't pull any punches. He's like, I'm not going to give a shit. It's true. And it is 99% of the time, end quote. So again, that sounds way intense. If somebody did that to me in real life, I probably wouldn't react well because uh, that's just not something, I'm not a contentious person. I don't really do well under those circumstances. If somebody came up to me and said, you're fat, stop eating shit. I'd be like, oh, oh, okay. I probably would say yes, and I probably would, but it would be a very intense and humiliating experience. Now, where I think the McKinnon thing really becomes positive is when you understand the umbrella of what Colorado has. Him is the beating heart, but it's accentuated. I don't necessarily want to call it a good cop, bad cop thing, but it's a similar dynamic because Bednar has the same level of accountability. It's just done in a really different manner. Bednar, if you watch his postgame interviews or press conferences and they ask about individual performances or this line or this pairing, he's the most blunt and just matter of fact person. You know, how did so-and-so play tonight? He goes, he did not play well. He needs to play better moving forward next game. And you know that that in that's Bednar being Bednar, but you know that on behind closed doors and in practice, that translates into a really healthy thing of, hey, you know what? You weren't good enough last game, but here are the ways that you can be better. Let's work on it. I think that's a really healthy thing to have in a team sport. Somebody who people respect being able to take criticism. Sometimes it's the fire and brimstone of McKinnon. Sometimes it's the kind of not velvet glove, but a lot more, a lot less abrasive approach than McKinnon brings to the table. That's the Landis Cog style. That's the Bednar style. That's the Sackick style. Now, what's kind of interesting about McKinnon is this doesn't always work that style. You have to be as talented as anybody, which McKinnon is. And you also have to know your teammates and know your sport. Uh, Because hockey, I think this works really well because this sport is all about winning. There's something within it that's just there's it's embedded into the way that you're brought up in the sports. Just team, 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 win, win, win with the ultimate goal and vision being, I'm trying to win a Stanley Cup. Every single Avalanche player on the ice, I, I listened to a million different interviews, but they're all talking about, hey, this has been a dream of mine since I was six. Gabe Landeskog saying, hey, when I was 10 years old, I had pictures on my childhood wall of Colorado Avalanche in 2001 hoisting the Stanley Cup. You know, every single one of them has a story like that. And it's just embedded in the culture. Win, win, win at all costs. How do I contribute to that in, in a team setting? So McKinnon's style in that sense you're going to see a lot of success. However, you know, a lesser player or on a different team with maybe less leadership structure around what McKinnon's doing, that could be not as positive. It could be a huge negative. You never really know. 
you know, I'd go cross-sport comparison and I'd say, Chris Paul, who is from just a, an accountability and wanting to win style, about as good as you're going to get in the NBA. You know, he's more fit for the NHL than he is for the NBA when you consider the apathy of a lot of players in present day. But it's almost a cautionary thing in the NBA because a lot of teammates have gone on record and a lot of people go, well, you know, my Chris Paul's really abrasive and he bitches out teammates for everything and anything. And he always tells them what they did wrong. And he always is doing this and he never stops ever in practice, in games, never, ever, 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 ever. This is a dude who does the same thing to himself, you know, holds himself accountable. How do I get better? How do I get better? It's never translated to a team championship for Chris Paul. And that's seen as a, by a lot of people as a, Pretty big negative. I mean, just like, ah, this leadership style, you know, you got you to gotta know your sport. You got to know your teammates. Turned off all the Clippers. That's why he ended up leaving. Turned off James Harden because James Harden doesn't maybe care about playing basketball as much as a lot of people would like. Maybe it's turned off people in Phoenix. You never really know. You know, DeAndre Ayton, good example. Just does he respond well to the fire and brimstone approach of Chris Paul? Seems pretty safe to say probably not. But now on the flip side, we're seeing Nathan McKinnon and this style really being celebrated. It's Jordan last dance stuff. It's okay. We've seen it. We understand it. They've hoisted the Stanley Cup. Now we realize this can work. It's interesting because both of these players are coming from the exact same place. Just all I want is to win. So now you move to the next component. What does it take to be a champion? What does it take? You have stars. Okay, you have organizational structure. You have Sackick making a ton of great moves. You have this vision. You still need depth. This is the thing I'm always arguing about as we get into the hot takes of is this player better than this player? Well, their team beat them, so they must be. And I go, well, there's, okay, let's pump the brakes. There's a lot that goes into this. And even on Colorado, who has two superstars, who even has players that they're not superstars, but they are pretty high up on the level of being a star. Landis Cog, Miko Rantanen, Devontae's. I mean, three players who are considered amongst the best at their positions. So you got that, but you need to continue. You need the depth. Hockey is a team sport. Much like basketball, much like football, you need depth in order to win, even if you have all the things that came before it. I was listening to an interview from Eric Johnson, the longest tenured Avalanche player, kind of came in with Sackick. Um, and he was talking about, he's just getting a bunch of questions and they're asking about Kel McCarr and he's going off for five minutes. Then they're just asking a little bit about other players. He goes, you know what is weird? Like I've been doing these interviews and I've talked about a lot of my teammates, all this kind of stuff. And it's weird as I go through in my mind and I go, well, yeah, it's okay. We couldn't have won with that guy and, but, or, or that guy or that guy. And he keeps going and going and going and going, which aligns with what I was watching. Because as I'm watching this full season and into the playoffs, I'm like, it's, it's crazy how many contributions you have to get. Kel McCarr's out of his mind, all playoffs, 29 points in 20 games, perfect defense on virtually every night, perfect breakouts, perfect rush, all that kind of stuff. McKinnon, it's about as good as you're going to get. He's just a continual force on the ice, off the ice. Even with that, I'm going, well, we need a Lance Cobb. We need a Rantan. We need a Taze. We need a Nazem Kadri. Scores maybe the biggest goal of the playoffs, probably the second biggest overtime winner in game four. Coming back from injury, he has his thumb broken in two different places by Evander Kane in game three of the Edmonton series. We think he's out for the playoffs at that point. He shrinks a six-week recovery into two weeks, comes back and says, ah, I couldn't really, I mean, it hurt like hell and I couldn't really do much with the thumb, but you know what I could do? Get into position to receive a perfect breakout pass from Arturi Lekkonen in overtime of game four 
and make a great move on, I believe it was Mikhail Sergachev. Right to the forehand, little chip shot because he couldn't really put any mustard on his shot because of the broken thumb. Chip it over the shoulder of Andre Vasilevsky, game, set, match. Much less Kadri before he was injured when he was just a continual force, most notably in his hat trick game against St. Louis in game four when everybody's freaking out and sending him death threats and a bunch of racial stuff going on after he ran into Bennington in game three and he comes out and just balls the hell out in game four, completely torches everything, scores a hat trick, leads Colorado to victory in a series that they end up winning in six games. Right there you go. Nazem Kadri worth his weight in gold. You needed everything he did. That's the second line center. But then you keep going and you're like, well, yeah, when Sam Gerrard broke his sternum in game three against St. Louis, Bowen Byram, who'd been great already, but still rookie defenseman, pretty steep learning curve to try and learn on the fly in the playoffs. This is his first playoff playing. Now he's elevate, elevated from this third pairing. Now he's getting more minutes and they're going, you're going to be, we need you to step up. If you don't step up, we could be in the same situation we were last year against Vegas when McCarr and Taze were great and nobody else was and Vegas caved Colorado in all the minutes that that top pairing was not out. And instead, Byram turned into one of the quiet stars of the playoffs. He was sensational. He was eating up big minutes. By the time the Stanley Cup finals finished, he led all defensemen on either side in five-on-five ice time. That is an incredible stat in a series with just all of these horses who are talented, who want to be out there. Bowen Byram was the leader in five-on-five ice time. I was listening to a podcast from Dmitry Filipovich uh, of the Hockey PDO cast, ESPN, and he's like, there's a case to be made. Bowen Byram was the best defenseman on either side in the Stanley Cup finals. And it was not that crazy. I mean, he was sensational. You need that. Nether depth be stepping up. I mean, backup goaltender, Pavel Francos. He has to win six games for Colorado out of 16 because Darcy Kemper has his eye poked in game three against Nashville and leaves and doesn't can't see. And then he comes back and he still seems spots. So then he has to leave. I mean, Pavel Francos wins every game in the Western Conference Finals for Colorado. Four games against Edmonton. It's high-flying offense that had just been murdering teams. Pavel Francos is the one who steps up. You keep going and you go, but you needed more. It's not just it's not just the players I've already talked about. You keep going and you're like, Arturi Lekin, you needed everything. He scores... Big goal after big goal, he does every little tiny thing. He scores the overtime winner to send Colorado to the Stanley Cup final. He scores the game-winning goal to win the Stanley Cup. He's moving up and down the lineup. He starts the playoffs as third line. Then he's up to the second line. Then he's on the first line. Then he's back to the second line. Then he's on the first. Just any time Colorado needed a stopgap, Lekkonen was moved to that position. Just a little chess piece. Same thing as Valeri Nachushkin, who had his best series of the playoffs in the Stanley Cup finals. He was arguably Colorado's best forward alongside McKinnon. Those were the two best forwards in that series, bar none, either side. And he's playing game the end of game five and game six on what looked to me like a broken foot. There's a picture of it after the game six. Just it's black and blue. You can't, it, it's disgusting. He's getting carted around in celebrations and he's just like, oh yeah, I mean, I couldn't get my skate on, but after that, it was just, uh, you know, how much pain can you stand? And he was still sensational with that. It never looked like he was injured. It was crazy. JT Comfort, nether depth piece. He has a stretch. I mean, he struggles at the start of the playoffs. He struggles at the end, but he was huge. The last two games against St. Louis, he was huge the entire Edmonton series. Darren Helm, fourth liner, scores the biggest goal of the playoffs. Game six against St. Louis on the ropes, tie game. Slap shot goes in with four seconds to go to send Colorado to the Western Conference Finals. Andrew Cogliano, nether depth piece. Fourth liner, who's somehow turns into a bowling ball again, even though he's played 1,200 NHL games without winning a Stanley Cup. He's mashing people. He's scoring big goals. He breaks his finger 
He has to have a pin inserted into it. They don't think he's coming back for the Stanley Cup finals. He comes back. He's trying to hoist the Stanley Cup with his mangled hand. He can't really do it, but you're just like, you needed Andrew Cogliano. Scored the tying goal of game four to set up Kadri's overtime winner. Josh Manson, another deadline acquisition. Another person who had to step up with Sam Gerrard injured. I mean, I could keep going. I could literally do this for every single player on Colorado's roster. Because you need you need all of this, you know, hockey, team sport. There's a lot of moving pieces. There's so much stuff going on. And injuries, as I mentioned with uh, a couple of these people, and really you could go down pretty much all of Colorado's roster, injuries are part of the game. So then it becomes who can play through them. Okay, we're getting a Chushkin, we're getting Kadri, and who can't? You know, Andre Burakovsky, he's one of Colorado's best skaters in games one and two. He's playing those games on a broken ankle. And then in game two, he takes a puck off the hand that breaks his hand. So now he's out for the rest of the series because how are you even playing on the broken ankle to begin with? But now you have two broken areas. You can't do that. So, okay, how do we mitigate the loss of those that cannot? That's a depth issue. That's a depth issue always. And hockey, you hear the word war of attrition thrown around or the term. There's a reason because this sport is so freaking intense. You can't even fathom it until you watch it. And everybody's getting this mangled and this broken and okay. Who's the next to step up? Okay, can I play at 60% capacity? Okay, Nazem Kadri, you're in and you can't really use your hand. What can you do for us? We need you. That's a depth thing. You need that. You need the stars. You need the organizational structure. You need the vision. You need the depth. So those are all things that you can control, you know, that, that comes from a really high level of operation, whether that's just the organization itself or how each player plays. You know, you're not going to see hockey players play better than Akel McCarr or McKinnon. They're just... Sensational hockey talents. The job that Sakik and his entire team has done, about as good as you can see over the last five years. You know, they're playing the other team that a mirror image of just, this is what an organization should look like from the top down, Tempe Lightning. But even amidst all of that, you have to have all those things. Okay, now we're in position. You still need luck. You always need luck. That's why I get very angry about a lot of hot take stuff because so many times, this stuff can just boil down to simple random chance. The moment that is going to, uh, I'll point to for time and all eternity, I already know because it is the turning point of this iteration of the Avalanche franchise is the draft after the 2017 season, which I've spoken about before. And, and it's a moment that I was convinced that this Colorado Avalanche team was just cursed. They'd gone through the worst season. I'd watched so much of it and it was just, depressing as hell and i'm like what is what am i even doing this is so weird that i'm doing this there's nothing here you know okay there's some young talent it's it is fun to watch mckinnon and landis cog and ranton at that time but there was no there was no indication that this would somehow translate into a lot of team success it was just one of those things you do as a fan you're like i don't know why i feel loyalty to this but it's just something i've done and so i continue to do it and out of that, I go, at least we're going to get the number one pick because we have the best chance. And, you know, it's very unlikely we fall to four. That's just a sliver of a probability. That's the worst pick we could possibly have as the team with the best odds to get the first pick. And instead, the NHL draft lottery goes and we get the fourth pick. And I'm just like, this is so dumb. I hate this. <laughs> I actually hate this. I hate that I'm invested in this. I hate that it continually finds a way to when we've sunk low. There's always a step you can go lower and then you go, at least we're at the lowest point and then it goes lower. And out of that season, I was just like, okay, at least we're going to get a good draft pick. Then we get the fourth pick and I go, how do we only have the fourth pick from that season? It seems so rude. And then the most incredible things come, <laughs> the most incredible thing comes out of that moment. 
which is three teams making a decision they will regret for time and all eternity and passing on Kel McCarr, who goes to Colorado at number four. So you have Nico Hersher go off the board. You have Nolan Patrick go off the board. You have Miro Haskin go off the board. You have the Devils and the Flyers and the Stars, and they're all doing jumping jacks saying, ha, sweet, great. Colorado drafts McCarr, and I go, all right, let's start learning about this dude. And again, it's, it's incredible to think of the chain of events that occurred and it seemed like such a blow to them to be picking it fourth. And now it's very apparent that they drafted a generational player in the fourth slot who has not single-handedly but been a large part of Colorado now winning a Stanley Cup and being set up to contend for Stanley Cups for the foreseeable future. That's random luck. That is chance. That is just something that occurred that you could not control, and it went so far in your favor that you just tip your cap to the hockey gods and say, thank you for that one. And then even within this playoff run, you know, there's a lot of stuff organizationally that's that's happened that you just go, this is just, you know, you can't control that the New York Islanders are in a total crunch against the salary cap. And so they got to get rid of somebody. And for whatever reason, they're just like, okay, Devontae's is on the market. And, and Sackett goes, oh, okay, we'll help you out. Here's two second round picks. And the Islanders go, great. We're getting some assets for this guy that we literally cannot fit into our salary cap. He's been a good defenseman for us, but Colorado identified something in this smooth skating, quick, puck-moving defenseman, and they said that aligns perfect with our organizational vision. And they get Devontae's, who's been one of the, generously speaking, one of the 15 best defensemen in hockey for the last two years. You really want to cut down, you could make a case he's one of the 10 best. Playing on the best pairing in hockey, him and Kel McCarr. You got that guy for two second-round picks. It's just... It's a fleecing from Colorado. You also needed an alignment of the stars that the Islanders had botched their cap situation so drastically that they had to get rid of somebody that they knew was good. They just didn't understand was this good because the Islanders play caveman hockey. And once Taze went to a team that wanted to break out, break out, break out, his skills just exploded off of the TV screen. Just luck, you know, it's just luck. Even in the playoff run, you look across and you go, all right, who's Nashville's best player in round one? UC Saros their goaltender, didn't play because he was injured right at the end of the regular season. Just luck. Jordan Bennington, who looked like he was rounding into form in the first two games against Colorado, he gets injured in game three in that weird Kadri play. Seemed like he had a prior injury that was kind of exacerbated by a collision that didn't look that uh, intense. He's out for the rest of the series. That's just luck. Even on a game-to-game basis, just the margins that exist within sports that exist within hockey, they're tiny. I'd point to a game like... Game three against Edmonton. Let's go back to that. Colorado's up 2-0 in the series. Game three's on the road. You know you're getting Edmonton's best effort. They're flying around. It's tied in the third period. There's less than eight minutes to go. Colorado has taken a penalty. JT Comfer. Edmonton, they're they're coming on the power play. McDavid has a great chance. Can't get it by Francois. Right near the end of this power play, Evan Bouchard gets the puck right in the high slot and just rips it, you know, through a bunch of traffic, drills the pulse. Bang! Centimeter this way or that way. It's in the back of the net. Edmonton's up. Maybe they win the game. Maybe it's 2-1. Who knows what's happening moving forward. Instead, drills the post. Bounces up in the air. Colorado spears it out. As JT Confer's coming out of the penalty box, he wins a puck battle against Bouchard, who is now racing back, and goes in and puts what ends up being the game-winning goal behind Mike Smith. It's just, if you could look at a 10-second sequence that perfectly summarizes how close the margins of this sport are, I would go, I'd say, go back to, you know, seven and a half minutes in game three against Edmonton. And watch that sequence. Edmonton goes from, we think we have the lead to, wait a second, we are now down. 
And now we are down 3-0 in the series after seven more minutes. It's just the margins are fine, you know? Sometimes you allow a shot through and it drills the post and it works in your favor. Sometimes you hit a post and it doesn't work in your favor. It's just, you never really know. Game four against Tampa, that's a good, that's a good examination. Even on the post side, you know, it's a tie game. Kutrov drills a post with about 10 minutes to go in the third period. Could be Tampa up. The margins, they're an inch. Hits it, misses. Okay, let's move on. We go into overtime. Colorado's just, they're coming on. They're just coming on. They're getting chance after chance. They drill two different posts. Hayes shoots it, deflected by Lekkonen. Drills the post. I'm going, oh no, that better not come back to bite us. Tampa wins. It's a 2-2 series and I'm going to be just, I, I will not be able to survive game five. And then Byram drills a post a couple minutes later and I'm going, this is setting up for just the worst loss. Colorado's dominated this overtime period. They're going to lose. Oh, what's going to happen? Instead, the Kadri goal happens, which then after the game, John Cooper goes through little whiny routine about oh, there's too many men on this goal and I'm so sick to my stomach and I'm not even going to talk about it. Then the next day he comes out and goes, actually, that was just, yeah, I, that wasn't really that. But it sets off just for people who don't really watch a lot of hockey, it set off this controversy of, well, look, yes, there are too many men on the ice. Look here, this, look how many people are on the ice for Colorado. And I'm going, well, this isn't a too many men penalty. This is a change. This is a sloppy change that happens a thousand times a game. Tampa literally at the exact same time is going through the exact same change, you know? Just, this is not something you would normally call. Bunch of ex-linesmen are talked to after the game, and they're like, no, you would not, you do not call that too many men. It is a sloppy change, absolutely. They're both making sloppy changes. You could go back in this game and watch this happen 15 times on either side, but you are not calling too many men penalty on this particular play in an overtime of a Stanley Cup final game, never in a million years. But still, even with that understanding, you go, ah, you never really know. A different refing crew, you never know. You never know when a ref is going to put a whistle in their mouth and blow it. You just never know. You know, there's an alternate world where a ref says, that's too many men. You know, nope, I can see McKinnon. He's making a slow change. Okay, Kadri jumped out too early. And instead of Colorado having the game in their back pocket up 3-1 in the series, it's Tampa on a power play with a chance to make it 2-2 in the series, going back to game five. You just never really know, you know? On the refing front, they swallow their whistles in game five and six. Just, you could kind of do whatever you want. You can maul somebody, you could bash them. If you committed murder, it's probably a two-minute minor. It's just the way that the refs wanted those games to go. That's fine, you know? You go with the flow of the game. But you also say, different refing crew, different refs. I mean, how do these games play out differently if they're calling more violations? You never really know, because... Refs cannot be controlled, but they're always going to have their say, even when they don't have their say. If they don't blow their whistle, there's always stuff that can occur in hockey. If they blow their whistle, you go, why did you call that? Or was that a real penalty? Or if it is a penalty, you go, why isn't that a major? You go on down the list. I could keep going and going and going. And this is a team that just went 16-4 and in the playoffs. This is a team that just pieced together the most dominant NHL season from start to finish of the analytics era. I mean, this is... I don't know how you want to rate them, but you can easily say this is one of the 10 best teams that's ever existed within the NHL. As far as contemporary hockey of my lifetime, I mean, this team is pretty damn high on the list of just, you were dominant and you were so good and you had all of these things in place, stars, coaching, depth. And even with that, you still need things to fall your way. You know, if Colorado loses in any of these rounds, there's so many things that I could talk about and I go, well, just, Luck did go against us in a lot of ways. Luckily, we were good enough in other areas to weather those storms, but I'd start with the Kemper injury. I thought he was maybe the most indispensable avalanche player in goal 
and he gets spared in the eye in game three against Nashville. And I'm going, this is a nightmare. Colorado's going to lose in the playoffs again, just like they did two years ago, because they're going to be playing their backup goaltender, their third string goaltender. And they weathered the storm six games without him. And Pavel Francis won six games. Incredible. You know, the Nazem Kadri injury. I thought it was going to be a huge issue in the Stanley Cup finals. And it was. You could tell that there was a big gaping hole at the two center spot for Colorado. Burakovsky getting injured after game two. And just the void that that created, just everybody's got to try and move up a little bit. And then you put people in uncomfortable spots. And I'm looking at line two and three and four, and I'm going, ah, there's some people who are having to now play over their head because the trickle-down effect of not having Kadri or Burakovsky in game three, it shows. It was Colorado's worst game of the playoffs. Nichushkin's foot, that could have been a huge story. If Colorado loses in game six, and he's trying to play on this mangled foot, and then he's hampered in game seven, and the dude who'd been one of their best players is now suddenly playing at 70% or 50%, that's a huge story. And I would have pointed it and said, I mean, look at all these things that went against Colorado again. Oh, all right, just go back and try and do it next year. You know, it's all the things that Tampa feels right now. It's all the things that John Cooper talked about a lot in the post game of game six. I mean, he was listing injury after injury after injury. And I go, I know I watched your team. This is also Colorado. This is just the time of the year. When you're Colorado, you celebrate and you say, it's crazy that this guy was playing through a broken hand and this guy had a broken foot and this guy had a torn this and torn that. And this guy broke his sternum. Was I mean, but when you lose, you just go, eh, luck was kind of against us. We couldn't overcome this. It's something that Tampa has not had to fill the last two years because you could have done this exact same exercise that I have done today on this show for Tampa and said, these are all the things that went their way. These are the things that they controlled. Here's 80% of it. Here's the 20% they could not control that went in their favor. You know, Tampa bitching about a too many men call after game four was rich for those of you that follow hockey because we all know last year in the Stanley Cup semifinals, they played the New York Islanders and in games two and game seven of that series. Tampa won both and both game-winning goals were decided by incredibly controversial, too many men on the ice, no calls. Go and talk to any New York Islanders fan about it and they will be very, very, very bitter. And on both of those, especially the one in game two, they had 100% more reason to be so than Tampa in game four against Colorado. That's the stuff you don't feel. You just move on. You say, okay, well, yeah, maybe we had very clearly six people on the ice when Andre Palat scored the game winner in game two against the Islanders and that worked out. But, you know, okay, whatever. Get over it. You know, sometimes ref make a call in your favor. Sometimes they interpret different. So what? When you're on the losing side, you go, we couldn't overcome luck. Winning a championship is, <laughs> it is hard. I always talk about that on the show. It's crazy watching it with your team for a variety of reasons, but just me being the person who thinks in these terms of just how many things go into a pursuit of a championship. It's crazy to be this involved on a day-to-day -day and just watch every tiny little thread align and go, holy shit, you need so many things to work out, both that you can control and that you cannot in order to win a championship. That's why it's so hard. That's why there's a reason that everybody reacts like they do when they win the Stanley Cup. It's the most rewarding, just as a fan watching, it's the most rewarding like 30 seconds of a post game in any sport you will ever watch. Just that initial blip. I've gone back and watched it probably literally 20 times. Just Sean McDonough's countdown the last 10 seconds. In Colorado, a team that had only two people who had won a Stanley Cup prior, Burakovsky and Darren Helm. So everybody else, it's a brand new thing. And just, Watching them barrel over the boards and throw everything and jump and uh, just, it's the best. You know, the defining image of this entire run for me will be McKinnon and Eric Johnson on the ice, like in the immediate aftermath, just hugging one another as everybody else is celebrating in this huge mosh pit. And you're just like, oh, you know, they understand how hard it is on an individual level. 
And both of those people who have been in Colorado for a long time also understand everything I've talked about on today's show, just how hard it is to get everything to square up together, how rare it is to align all of these things that I've discussed in today's show. Get your stars, get your organizational structure, get your vision, get your depth, and then that wild, uncontrollable luck. Sometimes you need it. Actually, not sometimes. You always need it on your side in one way or another. So it's been freaking awesome. You know, obviously I'm, I'm ecstatic. I'm over the moon about it. I'm still riding highs. I've been watching Colorado Avalanche stuff all week. It's just the best, it's the best time to be a Colorado Avalanche fan. We have a great E60 doctor, documentary that's out about the Red Wings Avalanche rivalry that literally got me interested in hockey starting in 1996. You should all go watch it. It is an incredible and barbaric understanding of hockey and just the violence that's ingrained within the sport and really back then and just like the most iconic rivalry in the history of sports in my opinion. But beyond all this stuff, I actually want to circle back to Eric Johnson. Because I saved a clip. This was after Colorado had won. They'd beaten Edmonton, and they were waiting for the Stanley Cup Finals to start. Uh, this was in the immediate aftermath. And the, the celebration there was muted, but it was also, there was a little bit of reflection that was going on between some of the longer-tenured Avalanche players, especially Eric Johnson, who was the longest and who just has been there through thick and thin alongside Sackick uh, over the last decade plus. And I just want to read a paragraph. It came from Peter Bob, The Athletic. He was there just talking about what was going on. And I think it's a perfect summarization of just how hard this is and the understanding of how rare of a moment like something like this can possibly be. There was 34-year-old Eric Johnson, the longest-tenured Denver athlete, whose eyes grew damp in his post-game news conference, reflecting on his 857-game journey in the NHL that had, at long last, led him to the Stanley Cup final. He said, you never know if that opportunity is going to come. Thank you for listening to The Chris Rawl Show. This podcast is produced by Weston Tanner. Reminder, go and sign up for my newsletter. It's free. You can go to chrisrawl.com, subscribe. It'll come to you every Wednesday morning. It's cool. It's the thing that all the cool people are doing. Additionally, I want to interview people who have a deep emotional connection to sports. You all know this. Uh, if you are one of those people, if you know somebody that I should reach out to, if they should reach out to, email me, chrisco.com. You can DM me on Twitter, at Chris Rawl, either one of those things. I'm going to start recording those next week, and I hope they accentuate what I'm doing with the two times a week show already. So don't forget to do either of those things. Thank you for listening, and I'll be back on Tuesday.